Welcome to the Carolina Chronicles podcast. We're continuing our discussions with Mr. Rob Chumley today, and he kicks it off with a story that you have to hear. It is absolutely epic. So I'm not going to make you wait for it. Let's get into it. Hey, Rob, I'm glad you're back with us today. Well, it's always good to talk to you, Ann. Good to see you this morning. Oh, yeah. It's a, it's a good day. <clears throat> it's a good day, a beautiful day in the neighborhood. Yeah, that's exactly <laughs> right. <laughs> and I just told you a few minutes ago, we have a listener in Ireland. Hello, Ireland. Your wife has Irish roots. She does. She does. And, and it's great that we could, uh, we could go that direction because uh, I'd like to talk a little bit about some things that may... You know, it affected her family too. So we bring some interesting little anecdotes in to do with that today too. Well, that's when you find out where the real history is. That's exactly when it, right. When it affects your family, and that's exactly and you right. Got, that's the good stories. Yeah, that's the good stuff. That's right. But you know, beforehand, before we get to that, I um, I'd like to talk about two South Carolinians. There's so much that we can talk about with the colonial period in South Carolina. Oh yeah. And uh, then around the Revolutionary period, there's so much we can talk about. There's so much history there we can bring out. Uh, I touched on this one time before, so y'all may recall, I made reference to Dr. Henry Woodward. And Dr. Henry Woodward is a fascinating figure, so I decided I would look into a little bit more about his life. And I thought we could talk a little bit about that. We we touched on it, but I'd like to expand on it a little bit because it is fascinating. He is somebody that is credited uh, in various sources as being probably one of the single most individuals that contributed to the success and the survival of the first English colony here in South Carolina of anybody. He stands out. And I kind of talked a little bit about this before, but I'd like to tell you a little about his life and what he went through. Now, Dr. Henry Woodward was a surgeon. He was probably born in Barbados. And he was on the um, original ship that came to explore the South Carolina coast, one of the first English ships. They came to the South Carolina coast in 1666. Did that ship land in Port Royal? I think so. Okay. I think so. They were Everybody back and, landed at Port they Royal. They were back and forth. They were back and forth between that. And, and it so happened. And that's, it's interesting you should ask that because what some of the material I was looking at earlier today talked about some of the Indian friends that Dr. Henry Woodward had made. And that sort of impacted why the first settlement was at Charleston and not Port Royal. Really? So we can talk about that. But, yeah, he came uh, with the English ship. They landed around in the somewhere in the area of Port Royal, Charleston. The first ship came around 1666, and they explored, did a little exploration, and and, um, did a little study and that type of thing. They were there for a little while, and finally one of the the Indians asked if he could return on the ship. So um, they made quick friends with the Indians. They were very friendly. They were very helpful. And so Dr. Woodward said at that point, he said, well, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll volunteer to stay behind as a goodwill ambassador to the Indians. He said, and we'll wait for y'all to return. Well, this is 1666. So he did, and he started a a good situation, started getting along well, uh, establishing some great relations there with the Indian tribes. But it wasn't long before a raiding party of Spanish came up the coast from St. Augustine, and they actually captured him, and they took him prisoner took him to St. Augustine, and they put him in chains there and imprisoned him for a while, although he 
uh, after a while was treated treated pretty well. But he worked. He was there in St. Augustine for a while until St. Augustine was raided by English pirates. And so when they raided St. Augustine, when they found he was an Englishman, so to speak, they took him on board, sort of impressed him into service as the ship's surgeon. So he found himself, after being captured and imprisoned and taken to St. Augustine, after being in the wilderness in South Carolina, he found himself on a pirate ship being forced sort of to serve as a ship's surgeon. So he was on there for some time, and they went through a number of sea battles. (laughs) You can imagine what that was like. Storms and sea battles, and he survived them all. Until finally, they were caught up in a hurricane, and the hurricane wrecked the ship, and the ship sunk. He was able to make it to Nevis, Nevis? The, the island of Nevis. Where mm-hmm. is that? Well, that's down there south of I don't know if you have, south of where the the Turks and Caicos is. Really, down, down in there, the Caribbean, okay. closer down toward Barbados. Okay, not that far from Barbados as far from Nevis to the coast of South Carolina is about eighteen hundred miles. So he was marooned on Nevis. So here he is on a tropical island after a shipwreck after a hurricane. Well, Nevis was a stop, uh, occasionally a stop for ships leaving Barbados, and it so happened that an English ship stopped there, and this was 1670, and it was a ship that he had been waiting on back in South Carolina to come back. They actually stopped and picked him up earlier, and there he was on Nevis. They expected him to be in South Carolina. There he was on this tropical island. Oh, my goodness. What are the odds? So they picked him up, so he came back with the party that he was originally waiting for, and they landed back in South Carolina, and they came in around Port Royal, but as they talked to some of the Indians, he had, thanks to Dr. Henry Woodward, he had established such a good relationship with the Indians. He had learned the language, and he was able to communicate, and they trusted him. And so eventually, he became uh, employed by the Lord's proprietors because what he did was he established good trading relations with the Indians. And see, that's something that he saw that the Spanish were doing. That's how they established relations with the natives. So what he wanted to do was establish really a lucrative trade with the Indians. So he was employed by the Lord's proprietors to do that, and he was successful at doing that. And the Lord's proprietors had some very strict rules. If any land was used, the Indians had to be paid for it. Uh, They had to be treated fairly in every transaction. And Dr. Woodward did his best to see that they were completely treated fairly. And so the Indians trusted him, they loved him, and so they helped him out. So when they landed at Port Royal, the interesting thing about that was some of his friends there that told him, they said the land north of here is safer. It's not as close to the Westos. They were afraid of the Westos. The natives there in that area were afraid of the Westo tribe. Ah, uh, Westo tribe, another That's war. right. Okay. That's right. right. They were afraid of that. And so what they and plus they said the land is much better up where I'm talking about where my tribe is from. This particular this particular Indian told him that. So he persuaded them, so they moved up to where Charleston Harbor is. And so they came up to Oyster Point, which, and that's why the establishment was at Charleston and not Port Royal. They moved up there because it was a little further away from the West O's tribe, which was known to be pretty hostile to a lot of the other uh, Indian tribes. And it wasn't quite as close to what the Spanish claimed. So they felt it was a little safer. Okay. But because of what he did, and this guy was an adventurer, and so he went as he he pushed his way further and further into the wilderness and and befriended more and more Indian tribes. He ultimately got all the way down to present day Columbus, Georgia, down in that region, and he uh, befriended the Creek Indians. And so he established trade with them. Uh, he at one time he was um, he he found himself in some pretty tight spots. At one time he was shot in the head. 
He survived that. Oh, wow. We know he'd already survived a hurricane. He'd already survived sea battles on a pirate ship. The guy had already survived stuff in the wilderness. and um, Captivity in a St. Augustine prison was um, not a picnic either. Amazing, amazing. And so here he is, but he had actually established a great relations. He probably alone, along with Joseph West, who was at one time governor of the new colony, they established some great relations. They got along great with people. The Indians were very helpful to them, but he had he pushed westward, and so it, he got in a position to where he really was able to help out South Carolina and and keep it on a keep it on a level to where things worked well. And the fur trade that he established with the Indians, they would work that out. It became so lucrative that they had trouble finding ships to get all the trade out. Is my understanding. Seriously? They certainly did later with the rice with the rice wow. issue. But um, but later in his life, not only did he establish the fur trade and help get that going, but a sea captain came in from Madagascar and brought him some seeds, some rice seeds. And this was about 1685. And so Dr. Woodward is credited with getting the first rice that was planted in the Low Country. And as you know, that exploded as an industry. Uh, it was perfect timing yes. for rice. And so the low country exploded. The rice crop just took off. And so he's credited with that too. About He figured that it would probably work. He planted the first rice seeds. And so before long, within a matter of, like I say, this was 1685, within a matter of a few years, within three to five years, not enough ships could get out and in and out of Charlestown carrying the rice uh, because the... Uh, 17th century Britons uh, had a very grain-rich diet, and so there was a big demand for rice uh, in England. And so South Carolina, could they could export all the rice that they could raise. And so he's really the first one that did that, and that's all going towards the 1690s. Now, he finally, um, Dr. Woodward finally did die uh, somewhere between Charleston and Columbus, Georgia, on the way back. Um, there's some confusion a little bit about how that happened, but um, he was on his way back to Charlestown, and they were under attack from uh, an attacking party of the Spanish. And so at some point he did get killed, but um, this was years later. He had done so much to establish the survival that he probably deserves a tremendous amount of credit for the survival of the South Carolina colony. So for 25 years, he was the go-to man. Oh, wow. And he was the real relationship, you know, with the Indians. So this is just one South Carolina personality that we can bring out. It kind of shows you the that truth is stranger than fiction in a lot of cases, you know. Uh, the, the the romance of the of the drama, of the way this guy lived, and the adventure. I was going to say he, he has for. adventure in his I heart. I mean, it was you adventure, you know, and the, and the tough times that he had. It was just, it was, uh, it was just an amazing thing. That but, is amazing. But I, I really, uh, I really enjoy studying about that. You can't, you can't, it's a fascinating thing, you know. And then he had a daughter or granddaughter that wrote the textbook? That was um, William Gilmore Sims's family, oh. but now he. But it is you're you are right. There's a lot of South Carolinians today that that trace their lineage back to Dr. Henry Woodward. Uh, in fact, there's um, um, I can't remember her name, but she's a, a German a German politician, and she's descended from him. 
So he's got he's got relatives and descendants in Europe and in South Carolina today. That's amazing to hear that that this man who was over on the American shore has offspring who were politicians in other nations. Yeah. It can happen. You just don't think of it. Yeah. Well, it's a fascinating thing. It's really um, it's these people. You have to get into their lives and see what kind of you know. Sometimes in a history book, you get two or three sentences about somebody, but when you start to study what they actually went through and trying to establish a colony, you know, in a wilderness is not an easy job. It requires people that are willing to take risks, people that are adventurous, people that are tough. And the first South Carolinians were tough, and I think that's uh, that's a characteristic you still see now. Oh yeah, and it was wilderness. The backcountry only went to um, fifty miles inland. Yeah. So you're talking about when they were going way back into the interior, they were only going 50 miles off the coast. That's right. That's right. And if you're, if you're walking or you're on horseback, that's a long way. <laughs> Was that about a week? <laughs> if you're pulling a wagon and yeah, kids Especially if and there's no, tra- no trails much, you know, to follow. So True, true. A lot of Indian trails were used. Those were the main routes, I think, the main arteries. Yeah. Um, that's kind of how Blackstock Road came to be in. It was uh, up here in the... Uh, Greenville Spartanburg area there you're going to find Blackstock east north south east west black I mean you just don't know what Blackstock you're on but they all there's a bunch of them there but they originated as um, Indian paths that's right to the coast that's right and Gap Creek Road was another one that you see that goes through Duncan and Lyme and that area there that goes back a long way and we we sort of began to utilize those as Everybody else used it as their road to the coast, too, and, and farmers would drive their livestock down those roads, hence the name Black Stock. Use your imagination. Mm-hmm. Summertime would not have been pretty. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, people endured a lot, of, a lot, and they paid a huge price, but freedom was sweet. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And it still is. Yeah, and the unique situation in South Carolina developed a type of people that um, just, you know, didn't didn't expect to be taxed by the mother country. They'd been left free so long, they got that they got that in their blood. That's the kind of people they were. And you could see that that just wasn't going to go well later when England decided to clamp down and start taxing everybody. <laughs> True. Well, um, I was thumbing through this little book here that I had. It talked about the incredible wealth in South Carolina, that Charleston was one of the five premier cities in the colonies. I mean, a premier city in the colony. That was huge. And they had, um, I think it was like six times the inventory wealth oh, yeah. of any of the others. So, again, that played into why the mother country sort of left us alone and let, we were the fair-haired child and could basically do whatever we wanted to do for the, the longest time. That's right. Um, so... That just confirms that. Yeah, I'm, I'm thumbing through here, and I remember you talking the other week about we had one of the first um, trains mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. in the U.S. Yeah, the good friend of Charleston. Yeah, it was. It, it, but this is, a, this is sort of amusing. It began on Christmas Day in 1830. Uh-huh. It's called the, the Best Friend of Charleston. Uh-huh. That was the name of it. It was a steam locomotive, and it... It headed inland with 141 passengers. It, and this, it was the first train to carry the U.S. mail. 
How about that? By Another eight, first in South Carolina that we hadn't mentioned. By 1833, it was the longest passenger we- railway in the world uh-huh, was uh-huh. right here in South Carolina. Mm-hmm. Do you know how it came to an unhappy end? I'm, af- I'm afraid so. Oh, I'm telling you. Somebody decided to tie down the, uh, I think it was the fireman. Uh, he's, the hissing was the getting hissing, on his nerves. Yeah, the hissing <laughs> of the steam valve got on his nerves. So he shut it off. Yeah. Well, actually, he sat on it to prevent the noise. Oh, God. So they now, I hadn't both, heard that. They both exploded and came to an unhappy end. Yeah, yeah. So... You know. And they actually tried to use parts of that to try and, and, and they rebuilt uh, a new boiler from parts that they found. I don't know how many parts they actually found, but they used some of it there, you know. But you, you're you talking about first, you're talking about uh, innovative things, uh, you're talking about wealth. Uh, the rice culture that you just mentioned made such, um, was so successful, such successful business ventures I read a story, interesting story yesterday about a, one of the uh, rice plantation owners. This was after the revolution. This man had made so much money, and I can't recall his name, but his son was well-educated and um, went to England for education and fell in love with an English aristocratic girl over there. And the revolution had left his father with um, what... Uh, what you might say was a genuine dislike for Britons uh, because of the revolution. And so he wasn't happy when he found out his son was engaged to an aristocratic uh, woman from England. But he eventually, you know, consented and decided to go, and they and he agreed to go to England for the wedding and went over there and met his, uh, uh, his new daughter-in-law's parents and this type of thing. But the interesting story here was that at, after the wedding, uh, the bride's father said that he was going to give a pretty substantial gift to the bride uh, as a wedding gift. And so this particular Carolina uh, rice planter said that, he said, well, I'll do 10 times better than that. And just on top of that, I'll buy her a house in London and a house in Geneva. And so he wow. had the wealth just to throw that out. That pretty well shut down the conversation. I don't know about, you know, future family get-togethers, how it went after that, but he apparently told his wife on the way back, he said, whatever he gave her, I was going to do 10 times better. <laughs> he said, whatever he came up with, I was going to do 10 times better. So that just gives you some indication of the power and the wealth and, that, the, and the business yeah. that was established through the rice culture. So interesting stories about that. But that's all, those are all South Carolina stories. Good stuff. Yeah, and like I, like we've said before, our South Carolina was founded on the Jamaican business model, and which is a little different. New England had a different business model. Yeah, yeah. Um, but there you go. Yeah, that reminds me. This this is just trivia. But I found out where dowries came for. You're talking about the bride, and, mm-hmm. and so the uh-huh. the father-in-law said, I, "I'm just going to do two times better." I never could figure out what the deal was with the dowry, and I mean. They go. That goes back to biblical times. Uh-huh. The dowry, uh-huh. and I just found out recently that it the dowry exists because in the event that the husband dies, the wife, his wife, his widow, is going to have to be supported, and theoretically, it'll come out of her new, um, her new family's money, their mm-hmm. budget, their economies. Right. So that was the whole point of it. Um, 
there's just a little bit of trivia there that it's, I thought was interesting. It's uh, it's all really fascinating when you get into it and see how this all came came to be. And uh, you know, um, you're right. It was a different business model that South Carolina followed. Most a lot of the early Carolinians, you know, came from the Caribbean, came from Barbados. And uh, Dr. Woodward, who we were talking about there, you know, he, like I said, he was probably born in Barbados. Uh, not sure. He, he may have been Scottish. He may have been a Scottish lineage. Um, there were actually, um, there was actually a, a settlement during his lifetime of Scots that was not far from Charlestown. Charlestown was English, and they didn't get along too well. And so there was some friction between them. So that's all taking place there, too. So you've got all this going on. Um, got all these different ethnic groups, and yet, when we went to war, we went to war as one. That's right. That's right. And um, before and, there was a pledge of allegiance, that's right. We were one nation united. That's right. That's right. That's so, pretty powerful. Well, it's uh, it's it's something that everybody needs to know, uh, and so you know. South Carolina is a unique state. I enjoy I enjoy studying it, and it's it's got a it's got a proud history. And so we, everybody needs to understand it and know it. Yeah, they do. There's a, yeah, there's a lot more. Um, there, there are a lot of interesting things, fascinating things, and important things that will probably that that will definitely be uncovered in in coming days. The um, speaking of any time a woman did anything up to the last hundred years in the state of South Carolina, that's that's pretty amazing because we just have not advertised that very much. Okay? That's right. That's right. We, we know about Eliza Pinckney, but did you know that uh, Maria Martin Bachman from Charleston, she assisted John James Audubon in his work, and she's been called America's first woman naturalist. Really? Yeah. You know, I've never, I've never heard of her. Now, I love Audubon, and uh, we've got uh, one of his paintings, uh, one of... One of our that my wife wanted to get that I love, and it's of the Carolina parakeet. Ah, uh-huh. and that was something that he painted. Love studying the Carolina parakeet. You know that was um, really uh, America's native parrot, and he painted them. They were beautiful birds. They actually were parrots, even though they were called parakeets, and they weren't just native to South Carolina, but you know they're extinct now. And so it's valuable that we've got a lot of his paintings and stuff like that and a lot of information that we know on them now. So another thing, I, I, the, his, his paintings of South Carolina birds are, are, just, uh, are just beautiful. I guess I'd not thought about him coming through here, but he went everywhere. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, there's that. Did you know the first um, fire insurance company was in Charleston? Yeah. In yeah. 1736. The Friendly Society for the Mutual Insurance of Houses Against Fire yep. offered the first fire insurance in America. That was one that we touched on, we just mentioned last time, but I didn't know the name of the company. Yeah, and they had two uh, full-time firefighters who carried buckets and ladders. <laughs> Whenever there was a fire, they grabbed their buckets and their ladders and they ran to the fire. Oh, my goodness. Um, yeah, well... You know, you can only improve from there. What can I say? That's exactly right. Um, oh, let's see. Ah, this is another 
uh, another good one. I don't know what year this happened, but we were the first state in the Southeast and one of the first, among the first in the nation, not the first, but mm-hmm. one of the first states in the nation to pass a non-game and endangered species conservation act. How about that? Well, you know, that's uh, that's always been a big part of, uh, of South Carolina is trying to is conservation. We're we're a small state, and there's a lot there's a lot to take care of. In fact, you know, even recently, the South Carolina Department of Natural Resources has reintroduced um, bobwhite quail, you know, and stuff. In because you used to hear them all the time. Yeah, and I now haven't you heard do, any in a long time. You don't hear them as much anymore. But I heard some this past summer for the first time in a long time. So they've actually tried to reestablish those a little bit, which is nice, because that's uh, that's just a something that's something you should hear in the summertime. Is you should hear that my, what my granddaddy always called a partridge. Yeah. So, but they, yeah. Uh, they, so yeah, um, it, that's the way you sustain and and keep your keep your hunting, your hunting viable and that type of thing is to really have good conservation efforts. You know, at work, and that's something that another first that South Carolina did that that I hadn't even heard about or hadn't even thought about. There's a there's another good story that I that we could that we could get into. I'd like to maybe we could do it um, on the next podcast, or we can talk about um, uh, interesting um, heroine of the American Revolution. We can go into a little story about her, but um, but she's a fascinating character too, and I got a lot of connections. I think we've touched on her, mentioned her name before, but it's something we could really bring out. Jump forward a little bit to the time of the Revolution because there's so much to cover, you know, here in the colonial period and up to the time of the Revolution. Yeah, but and you're exactly right. There is a lot, and the unfortunate thing is, most of it is untold. And unless you research it out for yourself, you've never heard these things. And the stories are amazing. So yeah, let's do that next time, Rob. That sounds good. Hey, sounds good. Good to talk to you. Always good to talk to you. Man. See you. All right. So as always, if you have any comments or questions, you can send them to us at Carolina Chronicles podcast at gmail.com, or you can tweet us at SC Chronicles pod. We look forward to hearing what's on your mind until next time. Bye.